Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. In early June, Iran took the dramatic step of turning off some monitoring cameras in key nuclear facilities that had been installed by the International Atomic Energy Agency. The move came in reaction to a vote by the IAEA Board of Governors to censor Iran over its lack of cooperation with IAEA inspectors. This latest turn in the ongoing saga of nuclear diplomacy with Iran is further indication of just how precarious the 2015 nuclear deal seems to be. That deal, known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, was negotiated between the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, China, Russia, and Iran. It traded sanctions relief for stringent controls and monitoring of Iran's nuclear program, limiting Iran's ability to quickly develop a nuclear weapon. In 2018, the Trump administration left the deal and reimposed some sanctions on Iran, sparking the slow dissolution of the nuclear deal. My guest today, Laura Rosen, is a veteran reporter who has closely followed the contours of Iran nuclear diplomacy over many years. She is a member of the Just Security editorial board and writes the diplomatic newsletter on Substack, which I subscribe to. We kick off discussing the state of the JCPOA as Biden inherited it before discussing how nuclear diplomacy with Iran in the past two years has unfolded leading to this latest crisis over the removal of IAEA monitoring cameras. So there are sure to be other events and inflection points in the coming months as Iran nuclear diplomacy enters new stages and new phases, and as the JCPOA seems to continue to unravel. And this episode, I think, will give you really helpful context for understanding how and why some of these diplomatic decisions are being made. As always, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, or you can use the contact button on globaldispatches.org. I love hearing from you. I know I say that often, but it's true. I really do love hearing what is on your mind. If you have suggestions for me about people I should interview or topics I should cover, I read all your emails. I respond to all your emails. I really appreciate it. I do sincerely mean that. All right. Now, here is my conversation with journalist Laura Rosen. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
Yes, so the Biden administration came in January 20th and the Trump administration had left the 2015 Iran nuclear deal in 2018 and Iran since 2019, so for the past about year and a half, had been steadily exceeding the deal's limits to protest the lack of sanctions relief they were getting uh, Trump left the deal. So when Biden came in, unlike with the uh, New START treaty with the Russians, that was the first week thing that they announced that they were going to go back into, which Trump hadn't done. But with Iran, with the JCPOA, the administration, as they were getting in place, decided they wanted to consult with the other parties who were part of the deal before they figured out what they were going to announce, even though Biden had campaigned on saying that if if the Iranians would go back to the deal, he would go back to the deal. The other parties, to remind listeners, are sure. members of the permanent uh, members of the Security Council plus Germany. Exactly. And in particular, you know, Biden, as you've seen for the past two years, they're always talking about allies and partners and working with allies. So in particular, he really wanted to hug Europe and, and consult with the Europeans um, and then in addition, Russia and China. And also there was the implication, you know, Israel and and the Gulf allies who were very nervous about if Biden was, you know, the, the pendulum swings so much with U.S. administrations between Democrats and Republicans. So um, you wanted to consult with the, the Israelis and Arabs as well. So the upshot being that Biden did not want to rush back into the JCPOA, even though he was very supportive of it. Correct. And. The meantime is the Iranian government that had negotiated the deal, lame duck. You know, they were lame ducks. There were Iranian presidential elections scheduled for last June. So they only had a few months on the clock. Um, And so while Biden was trying to consult with everybody and get everyone comfortable with where he was going, um, the Iranians were sitting there saying, you know, we're going to be out of here in a couple months. And they basically, the former Iranian foreign minister Zarif and the former Iranian president Rouhani um, were pretty constrained by the Iranian system at that point um, from diplomatic initiatives because they had been burned so badly. So there was this terrible mismatch. And I think um, um, by late February, anyhow, the, the Biden administration had consulted with the Europeans and they had come out with a joint statement with, with the Europeans saying, you know, we want to go back to the deal if the Iranians will. By then, the Iranians took a whole month to agree to resume talks with the United States. They all didn't get to Vienna till last April. And the Iranians would not talk with the U.S. directly until the U.S. was back in the deal. So that added, you know, more time to all the negotiations that it had to go through the other parties. So you're saying in April 2021, there were talks, though not necessarily direct talks, between the United States and uh, the Iranians? Correct. Like the the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, plus Germany, plus Iran, convened by the European Union, you know, met in Vienna. Um, They started having those those multi-party talks in Vienna, um, but the U.S. was not in the room. So the Europeans or whoever would go back and forth. And meantime, so this is April 2021, Iran has presidential elections in June, and the Rouhani administration is in its second term and it can't run again. So by the time they start talking, the Rouhani people are really lame ducks. I mean, it's basically, you know, the beginning of their transition out. So 
the, the parties worked on a draft of the deal. And by June, just before the Iranian elections, they had part of a draft on a, on a deal to return to the deal, but it wasn't done. And they broke for the Iranian elections and with many parties expecting they would get back there soon. Um, you know, I think the U.S. Iran envoy Rob Malley has been quoted saying that he left suits in Vienna, um, expecting that they would be back there in a few weeks. And the hardline Raisi administration gets elected. And during the transition before Raisi comes in, while many people were thinking, oh, that's when the Iranians will be able to rejoin the deal, right? And blame it all, blame any concession on the outgoing guys. That did not happen. There were no meetings. They didn't come back. You, I think you and I were both in New York in September for the UN events. Um, the new Iranian foreign minister comes and he gives a lot of speeches about, you know, why they're not rushing back to talks. Anyhow, by the time they all get back to Vienna, it is not till the last week of November. And then the new, you know, the, the hardline guys come in and they spend the first couple of weeks of December um, putting basically walking back everything they already conceded in the draft that they had till June. So there was really a crisis. Some members left the U.S. negotiating team. I think you've heard of the deputy envoy, Richard Nephew, left feeling like the, the Iranians were giving the U.S. the runaround. Um, at that point, Russia really had been playing um, an important role because the Iranians felt like Russia. So the Europeans and the U.S. are on one side, kind of the hardliners, right? From the Iranian perspective, it's the U.S. and the Western Europe are the are the hardliners and Russia and to a certain extent, China are the more reasonable interlocutors. For, for the, exactly. And so in back in December, so in this crisis point when, you know, the U.S. team was having divisions and people didn't know if they were going to walk out on the on the talks because the Iranian position was seen as so unreasonable with this new government after they waited months and months to come back to the talks and after they had expanded their nuclear program during those months in, in ways that um, were alarming. You know, they had um, increased their 20 percent enrichment. I don't remember exactly when they started 60 percent enrichment. They were doing more underground enrichment. So I think the Western parties felt like the Iranians were trying to boost up their nuclear program to put pressure on the West to give more concessions. And then that, you know, and, and I think the West felt, um, you know, that the Iranians weren't negotiating good faith. At this point, the Russians really um, went into overdrive and behind the scenes, they worked with the Iranians and told them like, you've got to, they got the Iranians basically to walk back to the old draft, more or less. On the nuclear front, they got them to go back to the old, to the old draft. And so a crisis was averted by late December. Um, the Iranians also, so the U.S., if Iran hadn't done that, the U.S. said there was going to be uh, uh, at the IAEA Board of Governors meeting in late December, they were going to have a censor resolution against Iran. But Iran made all these concessions at the last minute, and so they didn't have to do the censor. And then they had two months of incredibly productive talks in Vienna, even with this hardline Iranian government, where they basically got a draft done against a lot of people's expectations by the end of February. And I went to Vienna the end of February with a lot of other people because negotiators um, were telling us they expected to get the deal. And then the, 
Russian war on Ukraine starts. Yeah. So I remember reading lots of commentary from, from you and, and from others saying, wow, we are really close to um, a, a diplomatic breakthrough on the Iran nuclear front. This was like the early, this was like you know, the end of February, middle of February. And then February 24th, Russia invades Ukraine. And given the crucial role that you describe Russia played in bringing the Iranians back to the negotiating table, uh, presumably uh, that Russian invasion of the Ukraine had a profoundly negative impact on Iran nuclear diplomacy. Can you explain what that impact was? Yes, and actually it wasn't immediate. I mean, I met with the Russian ambassador the day I arrived in Vienna, which was the day after the war started. And for a while, like, and, and you have to know that during the 2015 talks that led to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, in 2014, 2015, those negotiations, Russia had invaded um, Crimea. And there have been other instances in the past where everyone kind of holds their breath thinking it's all going to fall apart and it had survived. So I think initially the because because the Russians see the nuclear deal as in their interests, right? So it's not because they're doing any favors for the United States. It's, it's because it's understood that Russia wants the nuclear deal. But so this time for like a week or two, everything was still the same. The dynamic was similar that they actually got the draft, the Europe, E3, the three European parties to the deal said our work is done. There were just a few little things between the U.S. and Russia to iron out. This was like early March, as you said, this year. And um, and then Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, makes some comments. This is right after the European and U.S. sanctions are announced against Russia for the current invasion of Ukraine. And he starts making some demands that, oh, well, we don't know if the new sanctions on Russia are going to impede the Russian ability to fulfill um, its role in the nuclear deal, the Iran nuclear deal. So they raised some concerns to get taken to this joint commission, which oversees implementation of the Iran nuclear deal. This maybe takes us a week or two into March. The, the negotiations in Vienna have basically broken off for now because it's the draft is done. These are some new Russian demands. By mid-March or so, my understanding is the Russian concerns have been resolved. Um, that the, the Western sanctions on Russia are not going to impede the Iran nuclear deal. Um, but at this point, my understanding is the Iranians have this demand that the U.S. delist the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps from a State Department terror blacklist called the FTO list, the Foreign yeah. Terror Organization list. The U.S. envoy, you know, takes it back to the NSC and it goes up to meetings. And at some point, the White House or the, the, the Biden administration, they go back to Iran and say, OK, well, if we do this non-nuclear concession, you have to give us some non-nuclear concession, right? Mm. Like agree not to target our officials. They gave them some list of options for some reciprocal gesture. And the Iranians mold this and they come back and say, no, they're not going to mm. do that. There were different compromises. Like for instance, you could take off the IRGC and put on the Quds scores, the, the, the sort of part of the IRGC that is considered to be the, um, it sponsors foreign terrorism and proxy groups, right? It's not the, the whole IRGC is not considered to be 
um, acting abroad as much as this this Quds Force. Remember, the Trump administration had um, assassinated the Quds Force commander, Qasem Soleimani, in Iraq in a very controversial move. So the Iranians were still looking to avenge that. And part of their vengeance plan, it was that we've heard that there are, U.S. has credible intelligence that um, Iran is threatening to target um, former U.S. officials who they consider involved with that decision. Um, reportedly, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo um, has had to have um, $2 million worth of security from the State Department every month. You know, because of this threat, I think um, the former National Security Advisor for Trump, Bolton, is understood to have extra security out of this threat and some other officials as well. So this is serious stuff. I mean, this is like, and so, you know, the U.S. is saying, right, if we take off the IRGC, you can't target our former officials or could, could we have, and the Iranians wouldn't agree to that. So it's basically been stalemated. So then the EU... Um, coordinator of the talks, Enrique Mora, the deputy secretary general, went to Iran a couple of times to try to pass messages to try to see if they could get, are there other things Iran would want on the sanctions delisting front that might be acceptable, right? Um, And that hasn't been successful yet. And so it's in this context of stalemate that earlier in June, the IAEA Board of Governors, which is made up of a number of UN member states that kind of tilts towards the West, um, they voted to formally censure uh, Iran. What was that censure resolution all about? So um, a couple years before, there had been some particles found at, at, I think, three Iranian sites, and there had been an IAA uh, resolution um, asking Iran Iran to cooperate with the IAEA to explain what those past particles were about. This is work that I understand is before 2003 and before the Iran nuclear deal. And so Iran, back in March, when it seemed we might get the nuclear deal, had agreed with the IAEA that it would work on a roadmap to explain to them what these particles were about. And um, the IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi reported back to the IAEA board in June um, that he didn't find Iran's cooperation that um, that successful or that that convincing. And meantime, you know, there's not that much progress on the nuclear deal and the Russians aren't lifting a finger to help behind the scenes. The Russians had for several IAEA board meetings in the past um, gone behind closed doors with the Iranians and said, you have to do X, Y, Z. That didn't happen this time. And um, so the Iranians sent some messages through the EU trying to coax everybody not to do this resolution and um, saying that, you know, that maybe they'll come back to meetings or blah, blah, blah. And the parties went ahead and did this resolution. It was extremely mild, like calling on them to, you know, urging them, not referring them to the UN Security Council or, you know, it was much more in the language of coaxing. But Iran reacted very harshly, as they tend to do, and um, said they were going to they said they were going to respond proportionally and um, they said they were going to turn off a bunch of cameras, IAEA cameras. Um, they informed the IAEA that they were moving forward 
with installing cascades of advanced IR6 centrifuges and underground locations to do enrichment. Um, so they're, they're reacting very harshly. And, you know, these cameras uh, that they are taking offline are a significant part of the IAEA's ability to monitor Iran's nuclear activity. They're sort of how the IAEA monitors the nuclear activity. They don't like have boots on the ground. They have these kind of sophisticated cameras that they've set up at key locations. And judging from what I've heard from Grossi, the, the head of the IAEA, this is a very significant move that could seriously undermine the ability of the IAEA to monitor Iran's nuclear program. So I have to say, I do not understand all the technical specifications of how the IAEA monitoring regime works. And so my, my speaking with the European diplomat last week when Iran was announcing their measures, um, I said, is this what you all expected? And he said it was still within what they were expecting. So he, I don't think he was, I'm not sure all the parties were as alarmed by Iran's reaction um, as, but, you know, Grossi's position, Grossi has a different job than the diplomats, right? I mean, Grossi's all about IAEA continuity. And I, what I understood from what Grossi was saying is they could go about three or four weeks in this state after which he would not be able to guarantee that they had continuity of knowledge. Does that make sense? Yeah. So about a month, yeah. So they, they, they could go for some amount of time with still mm. feeling like they could recon, reconstitute what Iran had been doing and proving that it was peaceful, but he, so they have a it's, certain amount of time. Yeah. I mean, it's grossy and the IA's job to report to the boarding governors uh, about what they're seeing on these cameras. And grossy was saying, you know, after two or three weeks, we can't with these cameras off, we can't reliably inform you was my understanding and my interpretation yes. of yes. grossy's statement. And let me just say, I mean, um, grossy did something provocative before this IAEA board meeting, which was, you know, you don't have the Russians at this point playing a helpful role behind the scenes. You don't have talks in Vienna where there's any kind of momentum to get the Iranians kind of on your page, right? You're in a kind of stalemate. And Grossi goes to Israel right before um, the IAEA board meeting, and he doesn't really explain what he's doing there. And, and Israel is not a party to the NPT, and Israel has been kind of pushing loudly all the parties to, um, you know, end the negotiations and don't have a deal. And so I think the Iranians found that provocative. And and um, I have to say the diplomats I was talking to in Vienna from Western parties also found it provocative and not um, and not conducive to trying to make Iran more conciliatory. And so I don't I, I thought that was an unusual action by Grossi. Um, so anyhow, so yes, we're at this point and because, um, you know, Israel has been trying to spoil the talks. Meantime, you've seen reports of um, Israel not really denying the role in assassination of a IRGC figure in Iran um, and more recent reports, I think in the last week, of other IRGC affiliated figures who died of suspected poisoning 
And I know nothing about I know nothing about that. But yeah. it seems like the Israel's trying to create a little bit of paranoia again and Iran and um and the grossy kind of lent himself, I think, in a way to um you know, and there have been past acts of sabotage at key moments in the past couple of years of Iranian nuclear facilities, the Iranians suspect were done by Israel. And there's never, I think from the Iranian perspective, the IAEA or Grossi never really condemned those and very, very seriously. So, you know, it seems that the JCPOA has been dying like a slow death since Trump uh, ripped it up in 2018. But in recent days and weeks, it seems that that pace of death is accelerating. Is that accurate to you? Do you see these as like the end times? I don't know. And like, because my understanding is that the Europeans have sent something to the Iranians last week, various ideas for trying to get the talks back on track. They, there's some expectation that the Iranians are supposed to respond and they haven't yet. But, um, you know, look, I mean, oil is however many dollars a barrel. Um, Iran could be selling an enormous amount of oil all over the world if they got a deal. You've seen there have been protests in Iran. Um, they they implemented some economic reforms at home um, in the spring and May that raised prices, food prices and other other prices. And um and so Iran could really benefit from the deal. And meantime their nuclear program basically the breakout is less than a week or the amount of time it would take Iran if it chose to enrich enough 90% uranium for one nuclear weapon is now considered to be less than two weeks. Mm. So both sides, all sides have an interest, I think, in still getting a deal. And I think that you just have these, the dynamic, the global dynamic we were talking about is not conducive to helping the Iranians get there. And, you know, there's not meetings going on in Vienna. Those definitely help when you have like a certain momentum. There's kind of nothing really going on. Um, And meantime, you have Biden choosing to go to Israel and Saudi Arabia in July, even though I think from the Biden administration perspective, they think, you know, you can have the Iran deal and talk to Israel and talk to Saudi Arabia. Um, The Iranians again see it as right, like Biden picking their their rivals, their regional rivals over, um, over a deal with them. So it's, it's a really tough situation. And, and, you know, I've also seen that um, some Iranian commentary that like, they feel like Biden won't take risks on Iran before the midterms. And I mean, the Iranians think they're much more important, I think in the U S midterms, maybe than they are with, when you and I look at the polling of what people are concerned about in the midterms, it's much more domestic issues like inflation, right? But the Iranians somehow feel like Biden won't give them this concession now because it's too politically complicated, but maybe he will after the midterms. But when I look at the things, you know, Biden's probably not going to be in a better situation with Congress after the midterms. So I, yeah. I feel like we could be in, a, in the midst of a tragic mistake where the Iranians see benefit in waiting and think that they can get more by waiting. And I think Biden will be unable to give them more by waiting. Uh, Well, Laura, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time and for your excellent reporting. As always, I will plug your Substack, of which I am a paying member, proudly a paying member. It's great. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me again. Take care. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Laura and everyone should follow her Substack. It's a great resource for understanding the latest in Iran nuclear diplomacy and more. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.